The text for this morning's sermon is from Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took him pity on him and said, This is, the one, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Good morning. As Mark said, Pastor Dave is in the Philippines this week. I'll be preaching from Exodus chapter 2, and Mark and Matt will be preaching in subsequent weeks. This morning we return to the book of Exodus, where we will see God quietly and patiently working for the good of his people. In June, June, I preached through the first chapter. This morning we will look at the second 
In the first chapter of Exodus, we saw the people of Israel enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. They had arrived there during Joseph's power and influence and were saved from the famine ravaging the world at the time. Yet when the Pharaoh died, a new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. This Pharaoh feared the Hebrews who had, been, who had multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Rather than seeking to understand the cause of their flourishing, he enslaved them and sought to destroy the male children. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's demand to kill the baby boys. It seems only the midwives were living by faith. God blessed the Hebrew midwives who feared God, and so he gave them families, the very thing that Pharaoh had sought to destroy. The very last verse of this chap, the first chapter is chilling. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This was the situation when a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. I know some of you got married during the many and varied COVID restrictions and had to deal with a great deal of uncertainty, not only in how to plan a wedding when churches, restaurants, and all manner of public spaces were closed or had incredibly restrictive policies on how many people could gather. But imagine being in your prime childbearing years at a time when the threat of death hung over the birth of every male child. This was the prospect that Moses' father and mother faced. It was a time of crisis for the people of God. One of the main things I want you to consider this morning is the many choices presented to the characters we encounter in this chapter. Who are the heroes? And why? What is heroic about them? Which character is most like you? Don't flatter yourself. Be honest. Let God's word have its full effect upon you. This second chapter shows God quietly and patiently working to prepare a servant fit for the service of Yahweh. By the end of the chapter, after Pharaoh died, the people of Israel cried out for help. And we see that God has always been preparing a servant Moses the entire time to liberate his people from bondage in Egypt. And in this, we are to see that God is always at work, anticipating our needs even before we speak them. There are three main sections to this chapter. First, in verses 1 through 10, we see the birth and salvation of Moses. In verses 11 through 22, we see Moses flee Egypt to Midian. And finally, in the last two verses, we see that God has remembered his covenant with Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The structure of the chapter is laid out such that the three main sections foreshadow Israel's future story. Moses is saved from Pharaoh after passing through the Nile River, as Israel will later be saved when they pass through the Red Sea. Moses wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, marries, and has a child there. Israel, too, will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, marry, and there have children, before going into the promised land. And in the final section, we see that God has always been, and always will be, near to his people, listening to them, and eager to fulfill his covenant promises. As we work through this chapter, we'll see more of how and why God does this. Moses was born during a time of societal upheaval, ethnic fear, 
and animosity. Pharaoh had commanded all his people to cast every son that is born to the Hebrews into the Nile. Moses was the youngest of three children. His parents' names are not mentioned in this chapter. We learn them later in Exodus 6.20. His father was Amram and his mother, Jochebed. Aaron was three years older than Moses. Miriam, presumably the sister mentioned in verse 4, would have been the oldest, though her age or how much older she was is not mentioned. They were presumably born before Pharaoh's murderous edict. It is interesting that rather than being given the names of Moses' parents, we are instead told that they were both of the house of Levi. Levi is the tribe that will later become the priestly tribe serving God at the tabernacle. This genealogical detail would become important later when Moses and Aaron both begin the Levitical priesthood. When the Levite woman bears a son, we know from the previous chapter that the Egyptians had been commanded by the king to throw them into the Nile River to die. The writer of Hebrews comments upon and commends the actions of Moses' parents in Hebrews 11.23. He writes, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By the time he is three months old, his mother can no longer hide him. What should she do? How could she protect his life against those who desired to take it? Oddly enough, his mother seems to have prepared a plan. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Seems like a very strange plan. What did she expect to happen? How would putting him into a basket by the, in the river affect salvation for her son? Note that she placed the basket among the reeds by the riverbank. This means the basket is close enough to shore to easily retrieve it, while the reeds shelter and camouflage it, and they also keep the basket from floating downriver. The ESV obscures what I believe to be the primary clue the text offers us to why she did this. Some of the older translations, and even some of the newer, translate basket in the ESV as ark. I believe we are meant to see the connection back to Noah's ark. For Moses' mother, who we know from Hebrews, hid Moses by faith and intentionally chose to place her son, whose life was threatened by the water, into an ark and back into the water. Moses' mother entrusted the life of her son to the Lord by reenacting the story of Noah. She knew God had brought eight persons safely through the water and asked God to do the same with her son. She couldn't alter the threat posed to her by the water, to her son by the water, but she could entrust him into a vessel that God had used before to protect his beloved. God did, in fact, spare her son in a remarkable way. Her sister, who we will later learn to be Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. We would expect the daughter of Pharaoh to obey her father's command. But instead, she rescues him. While seemingly one of the greatest threats to his life, she is, in fact, ideally suited to spare him. Who else could get away from disobeying the Pharaoh but his own daughter? 
The daughter of Pharaoh saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Pharaoh's daughter surprisingly shows pity, something her father, the king, would not do. We know little else of her motivation, but thank God for her pity. Moses' sister, who had stayed nearby, sprang into action to offer a nurse for her brother. Moses' salvation is now all but accomplished. The water of the Nile River, which Pharaoh intended to use to kill him, was instead used as the means of his salvation. Peter talks this way of Noah's Ark in 1 Peter 3.20, comparing passing through the waters in the Ark, Noah's Ark, to baptism. Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 10 regarding Israel's passing through the sea, referring to the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, where Israel passed safely through it, but that water then was used to kill the Egyptians behind them. This is no coincidence. God was instructing Israel that he would also save them, like he had saved Moses, through the very waters that Pharaoh meant to use to entrap and kill them. Even more than Moses' salvation from death, he was brought into the household of Pharaoh. His mother received wages from the household of Pharaoh for nursing her own child while he was raised as the son of an Egyptian princess. Have you noticed how prominent a role women play in saving Moses? There are three women, Moses' mother, sister, and adoptive mother who act to save his life. Again, this is interesting in a couple of ways. First, as we saw in the first chapter, the male ruler of Egypt felt threatened by the male children of the Hebrews. But it was the women who resisted him and spared the sons. This happens again in chapter 2 this time with Moses' own family and Pharaoh's own daughter that spare the son that becomes Pharaoh's greatest threat. The text doesn't tell this explicitly, but one cannot help but wonder if the Hebrew midwife's brave defiance of the Pharaoh emboldened Moses' parents to defy Pharaoh themselves. Women, take note of this. Women are often found to be the ones protecting children from being murdered by tyrants in the Bible. Women, not just mothers, are shown protecting innocent human life. Consider also Jehoshaphat, who saved King Joash from being murdered by his grandmother, Athaliah, in 2 Kings 10. She, his aunt, risked her life to spare his and protected the lineage of King David and Jesus. Do not lightly dismiss your opportunities to influence the lives of children. We do not know the role that God has assigned to little children, but know that your influence is profound. Seize the opportunity to nourish and protect life. This is one of the most powerful gifts that God has given to women. The daughter of Pharaoh exercised her authority as the adoptive mother and named Moses, named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the waters. But interestingly, that is not what the name means in Hebrew. The Net Bible has a helpful note about the name Moses. It states, speaking to Pharaoh's daughter, The implication for the Israelites is something to this effect. You called him born one in your language and after your custom. But in our language, that name means drawing out, which is what was to become of him. You drew him out of the water 
that he would draw us out of Egypt through the water. So the circumstances of this story show Moses to be a man of destiny. And this naming episode summarizes how divine providence was at work in Israel. To the Israelites, the name forever commemorated the portent of this event in the early life of the great deliverer. The section ends with rich irony. Moses was saved out of the waters meant to destroy him by Pharaoh's own daughter, and he has now infiltrated the household of Pharaoh. He has been given a name pointing toward his future deliverance of the Hebrews, the very thing that Pharaoh had feared when he commanded them to all be killed. This name given by Pharaoh's daughter, which she thought made him her son, had a Hebrew meaning that showed that he in fact belonged to God as his deliverer. As Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds him in derision. The next main section, Moses' desert wandering, begins when Moses is 40 years old. We learn his age in Acts 7.23. He is now a mature man, a prince and ruler of the royal household of Pharaoh. Yet the text tells us that he did not identify with Egypt and the house of Pharaoh, but his people were the Hebrews enslaved by the Egyptians. Hebrews 11 tells us more. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. There's more in Acts 7 about Moses' visitation of his people. Acts 7:23 through 29 read, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. They did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. This comes from Stephen's sermon before the Pharisees, We're about to stone him to death. He concludes his sermon. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law and delivered, as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. Stephen's sermon against the Pharisees in Acts 7, along with the passages in Hebrews 11, make it clear that Moses was acting by faith, the part of acting the part of a deliverer to the Israelites. But like the Pharisees of Stephen's day, the Israelites preferred to be ruled by Egyptians rather than Moses, just as the Pharisees preferred to be ruled by the Romans rather than Jesus. The Pharisees could not abide hearing that truth spoken, and they murdered Stephen. Moses, as a type of Christ, looked on the burdens of his people and sought to deliver them. 
The same Hebrew word is used for the Egyptian beating the Hebrew as Moses who struck down the Egyptian. This appears to be the kind of eye for eye and tooth for tooth justice that is later commended in Exodus 21:24. As Stephen says of Moses in Acts 7:24, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Yet some commentators here will condemn Moses' action, saying that Moses was trying to save God's people by his own works rather than letting God save them by his grace. This does seem a plausible explanation, but without a condemnation in the Bible, I'm not convinced that this is the right way to understand this event. I prefer withholding judgment against Moses, as Scripture seems to, and placing the weight of judgment upon the Israelites, whose hearts were hardened against Pharaoh's appointed Savior. The outcome of this event, I believe, further cements this interpretation. The next day when he went out, he tried to intervene between two Hebrews struggling together. And he intervened on behalf of the one being wronged. He asked the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? This man understood the situation clearly and asks Moses, who made you a prince and judge over us? Moses was acting on behalf of his people. And this bitter Hebrew understood it clearly and rejected Moses' authority. He, like all Israel, was not yet ready to submit to God's Savior, Moses. It is, as Stephen said of the Israelites in Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. God had prepared a deliverer for Israel, but they were hard of heart and had not yet become willing to turn to God in their affliction. They would need to wait another 40 years A new generation would have to rise up to call out to Yahweh, just as that generation would later wander in the desert for 40 years because of their unbelief. And it would be their children that would enter the land. There's much for us to consider here. For which of us is not stubborn-hearted? How long do we endure God's discipline before we turn to him to be relieved? This passage is meant for our instruction. And we are to see ourselves in these hard-hearted and unbelieving Israelites. They were suffering under the hand of God's judgment, yet were unwilling to turn to him to be healed and saved. Is this not the very situation we find ourselves in today? Look around you. God-haters rule us. Children, by the millions, are slaughtered in so-called doctor's offices around the nation. Many of those children that survive the abortionists find themselves willingly going to so-called doctor's offices to be mutilated and sterilized in the name of gender-affirming care. Those who survive all of this find themselves shackled to the debts of their fathers and grandfathers. Yet we do not cry out to God for deliverance. Like the Israelites of old, we prefer the heavy burden of Pharaoh and the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than the easy yoke and light burden of Christ, having confessed and repented of our sin. So Moses now goes into exile, much like his great-grandfather Jacob. In Genesis 29, Jacob flees the threat of death and goes to family in the east. There he meets Rachel at a well, marries her, becomes a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock and has children. 
Toward the end of his exile, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So too will Moses flee the threat of death and go to family in the east. For the Midianites were sons of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah, after Sarah had died. While in Midian, Moses meets Zipporah at a well, marries her, becomes a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock, and has children in exile. We will see in the next few chapters that God will tell Moses to return to his people in Egypt and promises, I will be with you. When Jacob arrived at the well, he met other shepherds awaiting more flocks. When Rachel comes with her sheep, Jacob rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. However, the events in Exodus are slightly different, showing Moses to be a savior. Moses finds Zipporah and her six sisters already at the well, about to water their flock. But other shepherds then came and drove them away. Moses acted the part of the savior, stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses is still God's appointed savior, ready to save God's people. Notice, too, that Reuel is mystified why his daughters didn't bring their Savior home to him. When they come without him, he asks them, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Reuel then allies himself with Moses. God's Savior gives him his daughter Zipporah as a wife, and she gives birth to a son. This contrasts with the Hebrews in Egypt, who rejected God's Savior Moses. It is instead Abraham's uncovenanted line of children that respond rightly to Yahweh's Savior. Remember, this is the pattern we saw in Exodus 7 when Stephen condemns the Pharisees for rejecting their Savior. And in the book of Acts, the gospel finds greater fruit among the Gentiles than with the Jews. Moses will spend the next 40 years living as a shepherd, a vocation that will serve him well. For he will shepherd Israel for, for the last 40 years of his life bringing them out of Egypt and then into the wilderness, where they will wander until a new generation of Israelites is prepared to go in and conquer the land. It was naturally quite a change from the palaces of Egypt, which Moses had been accustomed to. But Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. These parallels are no accident. The Bible is full of these kinds of patterns for a reason. These patterns build our faith, for through them, God's people can see where they are in God's story. What kind of character are they? They can trust that God will work as he says, work as he has in the past, and look forward to the fulfillment of his word. God wants us to see that as the saints of old lived lives of faith, guided by God's word, that we too ought to and can by the power of the Spirit. God was preparing a new nation with Jacob, whom he would rename Israel. With Moses, God is preparing a savior for his people Israel, whom he is preparing as a nation to finally give them a land of their own. The emphasis in Exodus is that God will save his people Israel, but we see that the Gentiles will not be forgotten. The time will come for them to be folded in, which is one of the primary emphases in Acts and throughout the Old New Testament. We ourselves are part of that covenant fulfillment, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This brings us to the third and final section of the chapter, where God remembered his covenant. 
Exodus doesn't tell this, but we are told in Joshua 24:14 and Ezekiel 23:19 that the people of Israel had fallen into idolatry during their sojourn in Egypt. They hadn't simply fallen out of favor with the new Pharaoh who began persecuting them, but they were suffering the judgment of God because of their false worship. That is the background to the book that is otherwise implied by their suffering under the hands of Pharaoh. Through most of the first two chapters of Exodus, we find a few godly Hebrews, namely the two midwives and Moses' family. But despite all their suffering and hardship, not only do the people not call out to Yahweh for deliverance, but they reject his appointed savior. Only after another generation of enslavement do the Israelites cry out for help. In verse 23, Moses makes a point of connecting the death of the king of Egypt and the people of Israel's groaning and crying out to God. This is an interesting connection. In the beginning of Exodus, it is the death of one king that leads to a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph that enslaved Israel. The final plague in Exodus 12, the death of the firstborn sons, is connected with the uh, Exodus from Egypt. And the death of the Egyptians in the Nile in chapter 14 is connected with God saving Israel. Similar death and liberation themes will continue throughout the first five books of the Bible. The sacrificial system itself will be built around the death of an animal to symbolically liberate the people from their sin. The death of the high priest will liberate the manslayer from cities of refuge. And at the end of Deuteronomy, it is only after the death of Aaron as the high priest and the death of Moses that the people can then enter into the promised land. So there seems to at least be a symbolic connection between the death of the king of Egypt and the people of Israel crying to God for help. At last, the people seem to be ready for a savior. God has, of course, been near them the whole time. He has already prepared a savior for them. For the entirety of their enslavement, God has been patiently working to preserve a godly seed through the labors of five women, two faithful midwives, Shiphrah and Puah, Moses' mother, Jochebed, sister Miriam, and even the daughter of Pharaoh. God began his redemptive work long before the people cried out to him. This is how God has always worked. When man fell into sin, God immediately promised a savior would come. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would raise up offspring after him, which would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God kept these promises despite the faithlessness of the people in the covenant line. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What a beautiful and encouraging word. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And what an expression of sympathy. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses even when we can't speak. Who has been tempted as we are, and yet is without sin. This is the God whom we serve. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Psalm 145, 19 to 20. 
As we have seen, this whole chapter shows how God was at work to fulfill his covenant promises to the people of God long before they had cried out for deliverance. God had been working even in the years leading up to Moses' birth that like Christ, Moses would have a king seeking to kill him. His mother, through an act of faith, appealed to God to save her son through the very waters that were meant to kill him. When he reached maturity, Moses forsook the fleeting forsook the fleeting pleasures of sin and chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Moses then fled like his great-grandfather Jacob to family far in the east, where he reenacted Jacob's exile from the land, just as the people of Israel will 40 years later with Moses. And finally, at the end of the chapter, Israel cries out to the Lord, and he hears them and knows their affliction. This kind of process will happen throughout the Bible. It is the way God acts. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 God's word is meant to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. How will you be instructed, reproved, trained, and equipped? Which character are you like in this chapter? Are you like Pharaoh, who felt threatened and sought to exert power to preserve his status? Are you willing to use violence, anger, and retribution to enforce your will? Are you quick-tempered, and eager to protect what you believe is yours? Are you like Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed? They felt overwhelmed by their circumstances, but they lived by faith in a time of crisis. Rather than fearing ungodly rulers, they feared God and were willing to pay the price. They entrusted their, hand, their son into the hands of God, and God honored their faith. Are you like Miriam? Do you have the faith of a child? Are you watching out for and protecting the weak and vulnerable? Are you eager to serve those whom you love? Are you like the man in the wrong who was beating his fellow slave? This was a hard man. who saw the harshness of the world he was born into and sought to keep himself at the top of his social strata. He was using, willing to use violence against his own people to make the best of his circumstances. He saw submission to the ungodly authorities over him as a way of keeping his head down and enduring something he couldn't change. He saw Moses with envy as an upstart Hebrew who had gotten a taste of the good life, who was, but he was no better than him. He wasn't going to have any part of what Moses was going to do. Are you like Raul, the priest of Midian? Are you quick to recognize the blessings of God and to receive them in faith? Have you, like him, allied yourself with the God of heaven? Have you intertwined your life with his? Do you want this for your children? Even if it means giving your daughter away to a cause that may lead her far away, or she may be threatened with death? Will you do so because you have the eyes of faith, knowing that God will bless those who follow him? Are you like Moses? Are you willing to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus? Are you willing to lay down wealth, 
power and comfort? Are you willing to hate your father and mother and walk away from all they've ever taught you as Moses did with his adoptive mother? Are you willing to bear the reproach of Christ when all your friends and family think you've lost your mind? Is the reproach of Christ greater in your mind than the wealth and pleasures of America? Are you willing to leave everything behind to obey God's call upon your life? Are you willing to die to self to gain an eternal reward? Are you willing to give the prime of your life to menial labor, unsure of how God will use that in his kingdom? These are the kind of questions we must ask ourselves as we read a passage like Exodus 2. I suspect that most of you resonate with some or all of these characters. But who do you want to be? Who will you choose to be? The choices you make today, tomorrow, and days to come make you into the kind of person you will one day be. Our characters made one small choice at a time. We mustn't deceive ourselves into thinking that we can choose like the Pharaoh or the bitter Hebrew and one day become like Moses. No. We must die to self with each decision. But you might be thinking, this sounds like a pretty dreary, unsatisfying life. It sounds like I can't have any fun, enjoy the fruits of my labor or the things of this earth. That is not at all what I mean, nor what the Bible demands of us. Moses enjoyed the best of the world for 40 years. He was a prince in one of the, the house of one of the most powerful men in the world. Yet he was willing to throw it all away in a moment when he felt the pull of God upon his life. He saw God's people, his own people, afflicted, and he chose to be mistreated with them rather than continue one more day as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you think he regretted that decision? Probably days he did. God vindicated that choice. He rewarded Moses for his obedience. Forty or so years later, all the wealth of Egypt was destroyed and the ten plagues were given away when the Israelites left in the Exodus. God was going to judge Egypt and was going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Rich, powerful Egypt was about to be overturned, and the lowly, impoverished, and enslaved Israelites would become exalted and enriched. God's favor was upon them, and in the end, it was better to be an Israelite than an Egyptian. It is the same for us today. This world, as we know it, is passing away and is being remade into a new heavens and new earth. God has already achieved victory over his enemies by his son, through his suffering, death, and resurrection. In principle, God has already won, and we only have to choose sides. God is quietly and patiently working out the fullness of his victory today. He has already met our greatest need in Christ. He has freely offered the forgiveness of our sins. We must only look to him in faith and trust that he will fulfill his word. God's kingdom is advancing here in this world. Like Moses, then, we must choose sides. You prefer the fleeting, flash, flash, fleeting, passing pleasures of this world? Or are you looking to your eternal reward? You live like it? Let God's word mold and challenge you. Be reproved when you are in sin. Be corrected when you wander. 
be trained by it in righteousness. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the triune God of heaven? Or will it be an idol? Let us, in the words of Joshua, say, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.